Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We're talking about food. There are some dark clouds on the horizon concerning providing enough food to feed a growing world population. There is a connection between providing food for everyone and environmental pressure on food production. Joining me in studio to discuss it are two PhDs with a lot of expertise on the subject. Jason Clay is Senior Vice President with the World Wildlife Fund. Allison Miller is Associate Professor of Biology at St. Louis University. They're participating in a discussion this evening titled The Future of Food in a Wealthier, Warmer World. We'll have more on that a little bit later. I welcome you both to the studio. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Jason, let me begin with you. I think there might be some people out there wondering what the World Wildlife Fund's interest in food production is. Over the last 20 years, what we've come to realize is that if we don't get where and how we produce food right, we don't actually have a planet that's recognizable in terms of biodiversity, in terms of ecosystem services. We're going to be pushing to the edges. We're going to be plowing everything up. We're going to be planting everything. And that's a future we don't want to see. So we also know that if it comes down to cutting a tree down or feeding a child, the child's going to win every time. So we have to anticipate these problems. This is not our work. We're not food experts. Uh, we've done PhDs in it, some of us. But, but in general, our sense is that we need to make people aware of the issues and then begin to build consensus, and that is our role here. We don't have boots on the ground. We're not going to make the, the problems go away on the ground. But if we can make people aware of three or four or five things that can be done, we can solve that, but not a 100 or a 1,000. Right. Allison, let me turn to you. We'll come back to those three or four or five things in just a moment. But can you give me kind of an overview as to where we are? Sure. Uh, I think we're in an exciting time now where we recognize we have major challenges associated both, as Jason said, with feeding people, but also also in conserving viable, healthy ecosystems. And I think traditionally, um, the agricultural research uh, community and the agricultural community, maybe on, on broader scales, um, and the environmental communities have operated um, in somewhat different silos. And I'm particularly enthused to see conversations around the middle ground, the bridge between food security and ecosystem security, and the importance um, both for those of us working towards um, sustainable food production and biodiversity conversation to be at the same biodiversity conservation to be at the same table. Uh, working towards the same goals. We're in something of a bind here, if I understand the numbers correctly. We're producing, I think the number was 17% more food than they were. we were just a few years ago, but a billion people a day are going hungry. It's an interesting uh, conundrum, and there are many, many important uh, potential solutions, many dimensions to this issue. Uh, food waste, for example, is an important thing uh, to think about. But we're also working to make plants more efficient, to diversify the nature of the, the plants that we use in our agricultural systems, and to figure out ways um, for plants to be grown more uh, more sustainably. Uh, Jason, you mentioned four or five things that we could do to affect this. What are they? Well, I think food waste is, is a, yep. really, a really good idea. Um, in fact, it's the lowest hanging fruit. We produce food that that uses resources, uses land, water, labor, everything, and it's just either not harvested, wasted, lost, etc. So about half of all the food, new food we would have to produce by 2050 is food waste. So wow. that's, that's a big chunk of the solution. But we also need to kind of constantly be working on productivity. 
that's around soil health and, and, and soil carbon in particular, but it's also around genetics and, and how we're getting more uh, from the plants and animals that, that we're, we've domesticated. We need to work on consumption. We need to really be thinking about consumption and how we shift consumption to be more sustainable, more in line with the carrying capacity of the planet. Uh, there's not a one-size-fits-all here. What's good in this country is not going to be the same as in India or China or Europe or Brazil. But we need to start having a conversation about issues like consumption because people need to be aware of what their impacts are. And, and today, quite frankly, food is the biggest impact on the planet. What is the consumption issue that we should we should eat what's what's on our plate, what's on our plate, and not not throw any of it away? Is that what you're talking about? So that's part of the issue. Yeah. Another part of of the issue is is what you eat, what's on your plate, uh, and that is also portion size, which is part of what you throw away. But the what's on your plate is is also important. How much animal protein do you eat? How much? Uh, legumes and leafy greens do you eat? How many pulses do you eat? There are many ways to make a nutritional diet, and cultures have found them all over the world. We're, I don't think there is one way forward, but I think everybody has to be more conscious. You mentioned a billion people that don't have enough to eat, but there's probably closer to two billion people, myself included, who maybe eat a little bit too much, uh, and, and that needs to change too. So these are issues that we, we need to start start addressing. Not that there's a silver bullet here, but that we need to understand the implications or the impacts of our choices. Allison, let me come back to you on this food waste issue again. It's fascinating that it's such a contributor to the problem. But how do you solve that problem? You just tell tell people to eat everything on their plate and and not to waste. Is it that simple? Well, that's what I tell my kids. Uh, (laughs) But I think, yeah, I think it's complicated because it's not just waste on the plate, but it's waste before uh, the food makes it to the plate. It's where the plants are grown relative to where they're consumed. It's the length of the transportation process. It's uh, the, the environment's kind of matching the, the crop species with the environments where they are they grow best and where they will be consumed uh, at the greatest rates. Mm-hmm. So to, to Jason's point, there are many there are many different parts of this discussion, all of which are important. And I, I think you're right. There's no silver bullet. There are many silver bullets. I think I think that on the waste thing, I was just out in California and we hosted a a conference at Santa Clara and four universities presented some research that we'd commissioned on on waste in the fresh, in the fresh vegetable and, and uh, industry. And, and what we found on average was that 30% of fresh is left in the field or in the processing plant. Mm-hmm. Now, most people don't think that post-harvest loss or, or what's left in the field or early stages is actually an issue in the U.S. That's more of a developing country issue. We have, we have infrastructure. We have cold storage. This shouldn't be an issue in the U.S. What we found actually was 70% of romaine is wasted. Mm-hmm. Now, we have a little thing called hearts of romaine that people love, right? Well, the heart is only a small part of the romaine, and all the rest just stays in the field. And so how can we begin to harvest more of these crops and to actually utilize them more? But it isn't one thing. Sometimes it's the contract. Sometimes it's weather. Sometimes it's cost of labor. So, you know, there's lots of different things that are, that are going on here. Uh, so there won't be an easy way to fix it or a single way to fix it, but we'll never fix it at all if we don't begin to identify it and measure it. Yeah. That's the one thing about waste that surprises us. 
there aren't really good measures on food waste. And so we've had to kind of create it. We're working with a hotel industry in the U.S. to set standards for U.S. hotels across the board, all of them. Because as, as somebody from Hilton said recently, nobody stays in a hotel based on their food waste program. You know, we're all in this together. We've all got to figure out faster. We've got to share information so that we can do this more quickly. Allison, am I wrong in remembering that the, the fast food industry has kind of gotten into this with regard to uh, controlling the waste that they cause? I think there is some encouraging efforts across the board um, in the fast food industry and elsewhere to bring attention to this issue and to uh, do what do what can be done to uh, to stem it. But to Jason's earlier point as well, it's not just one industry. I've never really considered the, the hotel industry in this in this way. Um, so there's a myriad of solutions that are being, I think, tried out at this point in time uh, in different types of industries and around different questions. And that's, that, to me, is really encouraging uh, to see. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, the hotel industry, they have buffets for breakfast. They have banquets, huge amounts of waste in both of those. Uh, we were just – I was just meeting with um, a colleague of mine with the head of, of the food service at Google, they serve 100 million meals a year. They want to know what the hotel industry is doing to reduce waste because they want to start doing it as well. And theirs is a little bit different because they give the food away. So you don't pay for it in that kind of place. Well, that kind of encourages waste. So we've got to really figure out how to adapt to each of these actual circumstances. Well, so we're a big part of the problem right here in this country, obviously. What what other parts of the world are, are contributing to this? You know, the, on, on the food waste issue, yeah. on average, it's between 30 and 40 percent in every country. Wow. But the causes are different. Mm-hmm. So in India, it's outdoor storage of grains that go moldy and that are not edible. Uh, in China, it's long-term storage of grains to, to make sure there's food security so that by the end of 10 years, the grain's not edible anymore because there's been too many rodents or, or too much mildew or whatever growing it. So there's lots of different reasons here. Uh, again, I think I think the first step towards solving the problem is awareness and then building consensus about what you can actually do about it. Allison, what parts of the world is is food production an issue? It's obviously not in this country. I think there are challenges everywhere, um, and it really just depends on – where you are and the type of the type of plants that are being grown and the nature of the nature of the cultures and the societies in those areas um, i 'm seeing some really encouraging things here in St. Louis in the city of St. Louis, not um, around food waste, although i 'm sure there's there's that happening too, but around food production locally and so just i 'm sure many people are aware of the efforts of gateway greening that has over two hundred and some gardens in the city of St. Louis where people and students are growing and consuming um, locally and I think initiatives like that are inspiring, and they also, in addition to producing food and allowing people to see what waste looks like, um, it really helps bring this conversation home. It takes it from being out there to, to right here in our, in our backyards and at our schools. You know, it, it's funny. There's a St. Louis University. There was a team from there that won a competition on food waste reduction. And their, their, their proposal was that they would use stranded assets to help address this issue. So they thought about the post office. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to use postal trucks to help deliver, deliver waste food around. And 
they won the competition, but they couldn't get a single post office to actually work with them to actually develop a pilot to see if it worked or not. I've got to ask you to stop right there because we have to take a break. We're talking with Jason Clay and Allison Miller, and we're talking about uh, food production and the environment uh, in this segment of the program. We'll be back to uh, continue that discussion in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back to our conversation with Jason Clay and Allison Miller. We're talking about food production in a changing world and changing climate. Allison, let me come back to you. When I was uh, getting ready to do this program, I thought that what we'd be talking about, because environment was such an issue, was climate change. It's going to be all about climate change. That's part of the story, but not all of it. That's absolutely true. And we're living in an unprecedented time now where our um, our climate is changing literally before our very eyes. And we're tracking not only how our food plants are, are and need to change in response, but also how natural populations are responding to these changing conditions. And so as we move forward, we need to think not only about how we can uh, adapt crop species and identify new ones for these changing uh, environments, but also how we can do so in a way to maximize the the preservation of biological diversity in its broadest sense. Identifying new crops? Absolutely. There's um, just really a handful of species in the world on which most people consume most of their calories. Um, But there are 350,000 species of plants, maybe more, and many of those um, offer potential um, potential for improvement of existing crops, but also the development of of new taxa uh, for for re envisioned agricultural systems. That's uh, all right by you, right, Jason? Absolutely, <laughs> it's uh, it's something that we've been trying to target as well. Looking at where is where are the areas of biggest population going to occur. Where are the areas of biggest increases in consumption going to occur, and where are the food deficit areas? And what comes out really big is Africa. And so we we started a project with Mars and the Beijing Genomic Institute and an African development organization to identify the 100 most important food crops in Africa that had never benefited from modern plant breeding. And we mapped the genomes of those, put it all in the public domain, and now we're training about 35 to 40 plant breeders per year to do marker-assisted breeding on those crops because we think it's better to produce the crops that have already been adapted to certain areas and help them double or triple or quadruple production than it is to bring in foreign cultivars that a lot of the local producers don't know how to plant. Just explain what marker-assisted breeding is for those uh, in so, our audience and, and me. Sure. So what <clears throat> what you're looking for is traits. You're looking for drought-tolerant traits. You're looking for flavor or productivity mm-hmm. traits. You're actually selecting different ways to produce what is easier for the producer, for the environment, and also better for the consumer. So there's a whole range of traits that you might you might look at. But this is the kind of breeding that makes agriculture able to be adapted to climate change. And and we're talking climate change in a decade. We're not talking about impacts in 50 years. And so only through marker-assisted breeding, as opposed to longer, more traditional plant breeding methods, can you achieve change, like in tree crops, that fast. Mm-hmm. You just can't do that, you know, in tree crops really quickly. What's the difference between marker-assisted breeding and, and, and GMOs? Well, these are two different approaches um, for modifying and 
beginning to uh, change crops to meet the needs of our growing population, to meet the needs of our changing climate. Uh, genetically modified organisms are are one tool. It's one approach for, for adapting crops. Uh, marker-assisted selection is another, and on an occasion those go hand-in-hand. Hand. It's a stages along a continuum of, of change. We have a tweet here that I'll read to you and, and see what uh, you have to say about it. would love to hear what the guests think about cultivating, domesticating edible native plants that already grow in harsh environments versus genetically modifying our staple crops to grow out of their normal environments. There is a large movement in this country and elsewhere to identify and to diversify um, the number of species that are being used in agricultural systems. And certainly um, native plant species in the areas where they're native are part of that conversation. Um, it's, it's, it's a challenge to identify the traits that are needed for agriculture, and then to begin to think about the agricultural systems in which they might grow best. And so another school of thought, not competing, but just uh, another option, states that we might consider developing agricultural systems that actually mimic natural ecosystems, which have evolved to be sustainable um, over millennia. And the challenge is identifying species which are often longer-lived species that can grow in these these um, mixtures that mimic natural ecosystems. And there are many in this country and elsewhere that are trying to develop to develop those uh, those crops, often from native species today. Going back to climate change, uh, change, uh, Jason. Um, one of the things that has been affected, and we've seen it in this country and certainly elsewhere, is, is the issue of drought. Much of the world right now is experiencing that. Um, how do we deal with that in the context of what we're talking about? I mean, drought is drought, and if there's no, no moisture, we can't grow things. So we've got we've to manage water much better. Um, irrigation is going to be increasingly important in some areas, but we've got Today, on average, with irrigation water, we're getting one calorie with one liter. That's just atrocious. We should be getting five or ten calories with half a liter, but at least two with every half liter. Um, but more than managing the water, we need to be anticipating what the change is going to cause because drought isn't just a temporary thing. Drought is actually heat and precipitation bands are changing in the U.S., so if you look at the projections of what land is going to have the right temperature and the right precipitation to grow certain crops, by 2100, the Corn Belt is in Canada. They're not producing corn commercially mm -hmm. in Missouri anymore and not in Iowa. And the Cotton Belt sits on the border of Minnesota and Iowa. Now, nobody can think about that today, and yet last year, the production of cotton in Kansas doubled. We're already seeing the shifts much faster than people think about well, let's fast forward. I just mentioned I was in California last week. In 15 or 20 years, California is not going to be the breadbasket of the U.S. Where's the next California? So if we can anticipate that, if we can ask the right questions, and every country has a California in their food system. So every, every country needs to figure out how to do this. Can we anticipate that, Allison? You look like you were getting ready to say something. Say what you wanted to say, and yes, then I'll ask the question. I, absolutely. I think there are, are many scientists out there that are um, developing models as to what our climates are going to look like where. And it's not just the drought issue, but it is the swings in temperature, the swings in precipitation. Mm -hmm. And something that I spend a lot of time thinking 
thinking about is how we can develop crops that can withstand those swings. And so it's not just being able to survive to a certain level of or lack of precipitation, but being able to be plastic to respond to whatever the condition happens to be in that particular year or month or day. And so from an environmental point of view, if we're already using 40% of the land on the planet that's in the non-frost, non-frozen zone, then how can we produce more without using any more land? That's one of the things we want to see. Our concern about about any innovation is if it lowers productivity so that we actually end up farming more land. Mm -hmm. Even if it's, from an ecosystem point of view, providing the same services, it's not providing the same services from a biodiversity point of view. Mm -hmm. And so these are the trade-offs that we need to be really thoughtful about. And this is why it's so important to think about food security and ecosystem security hand in hand, because it's, as Jason said, it's not about getting more land into productivity. It's about making what we have as productive as possible as, um, and as harmless, I guess, as possible, um, and possibly then converting some land back into, to the best of our capacity, more natural areas that can support uh, biodiversity um, and ecosystem functioning. And how we do that, part of it has to do with the species that we grow and how we how we build them, and part of them has to be has to do with how we how we build these agricultural systems more sustainably. I wrote a book ten or fifteen years ago looking at twenty commodities around the world, and what I discovered when I interviewed farmers was that in each of those commodities in six different continents, every farmer that I interviewed could actually take five to fifteen percent of land out of production and produce more on what was left mm -hmm. because they were fighting the bad land, land that they shouldn't even be trying to produce on. And that's what our conservation reserve program in the U.S. did. It took 8% of land out of production and reduced soil erosion by 50%. We need to be making choices like that. We need to be making smart policies, and, and farmers need to be looking at where their real benefits are. We've only got about a minute left, and one issue that comes into play, I'm sure, is the issue of poverty. These are the people who are going hungry, but they're also – farmers and producers. Uh, how do we deal with, with them? And if you can tell me in just a few seconds, I'd appreciate it. Half of, half of today's farmers in the world can't feed their own families. That's the reality. And so we need to help them either get better and start farming at a bigger scale that works, go from one hectare to five, or we need to find other jobs. And one of the other jobs I think that's, that's really important is a more productive, viable agriculture, which has other jobs associated with trading, processing, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I should point out, as our time does expire, that both of you will be appearing tonight at the, uh, at the uh, Danforth Plant Science Center's conversation series presenting the future of food in a wealthier, warmer world. That's at 6 o'clock at the center, which is on Warson Road. I want to thank you both so much for being with us. It's uh, interesting to talk to you about this, but also very depressing in many ways. But with people like you working on it, we'll get a solution, right? Thank you. Jason Clay and Allison Miller. Thank you. Pleasure. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.